Hello, and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Haley Lancaster, and I'm on the platform team at Samsung Next. Over the next several weeks, we'll be sharing interviews recorded at this year's Web Summit Conference in Lisbon, where some of the world's leading figures in business and technology gathered in early November. Each week, we'll be highlighting conversations with people behind today's most groundbreaking innovations. Up next, you'll hear from Ariel Garten, the founder of Muse, which makes brain-sensing headbands designed to improve meditation and increase mindfulness. She'll be speaking with Christina Beckhold-Russ of Samsung Next about how she got into psychotherapy and neuroscience, the team's early brainwave experiments and applications, and why meditation is the killer app for EEG sensors. Well, wonderful to have you on. Thank you for joining us on my the podcast bl- here my at Web bl- Summit. Um, so you're a psychotherapist by background. Amongst other things, yeah. Amongst other things. is one of your training. You know, what got you interested in the brain and uh, human-computer interfaces? So, I mean, the brain is the center of everything. It's the way that we process the world. We think, we feel, we react. All of it goes through our little sensory organs into our eyes and creates the experience of life. And so if we want to affect absolutely anything in our lives, the best way to do that is to think about how it affects the brain. Mm-hmm. And so I was always fascinated by the brain and what it meant for our human existence. And as I thought about building a company and solutions to bring to the world, it seemed that the area of the brain was the obvious one to try to work with. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, what made you interested in entrepreneurship? That's a question I love asking people because it's it's a really hard <laughs> existence, really, you know, to try, to try building something yourself. So what made you interested in, in taking an entrepreneurial path? So I think entrepreneurship was really in the blood. Both of my parents were entrepreneurs. My mother was an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so she would just do her own thing, imagine something that could exist, and paint it. She right. would just imagine something and bring it to life. My dad was in real estate, renovating houses with his own hands, you know, buying one, selling, buying, selling, buying, selling. And so for me, the thought that you would work for somebody else was crazy. The thought that you would take the eight hours of your waking life and give it to like, you know, Procter and Gamble to make a better tie seemed so silly. And I just always presumed that I would be imagining something and building it with the background of a business that I was creating. Mm -hmm. And did you always think that you would do something around the brain or around technology and design? How did you sort of come to, because um, you originally, I think you, you owned a, you had a, a fashion store in Toronto. So you've done a number of different things yes. over time, but but always sort of entrepreneurial in nature. Exactly. It started with the lemonade stand. <laughs> like literally, I was the kid with a five-year-old, uh, five-year-old kid who sold premium lemonade with like raspberries and mint because you could sell it for a buck fifty rather than 75 cents. Right. It's so, like literally this was in the blood. <laughs> um, then since the family business was a real estate, I started to think about how we could innovate in that space and I started to do for furnished rentals very early on before Airbnbs, um, you know, as a teenager at this point. And I loved creating things in clothing. I loved making fashion of all sorts. And one day I made these awesome shirts and I was like, this is amazing. I love it. Somebody else is going to love it too. So at the age of 16, I walked from store to store in Toronto, my hometown with my little shirt samples and said, do you want to put these in the store? And most stores said no, but one store said yes. They would take it on consignment. I had no idea what consignment even meant, but I said yes. We're taking it, so great. great. (laughs) Figure out whatever the rest of it is later. And that began my career as a fashion designer with just this feeling that I have something that other people are going to like and the feeling that I could go out and bring it to the world. 
And so from there, it evolved. I then did the same thing in New York and became a designer in New York, then got an agent, started selling to stores across North America, ultimately opened my own little retail establishment in Toronto, actually just out of the apartment where I lived. It was on a main street, and we turned it into a store. And then from there, was doing quite well in fashion, but fashion is a terrible business model. You have to come out with like 30 new products every six months in a range of sizes that will all be end of life. That you know, half of them aren't going to fit somebody, your, your target demographic. It's a terrible business. And ultimately, my dad said, like, look, you know, this fashion thing is great, but I don't think this is going to take you where you need to go. And it was really hard to hear because I was a 22-year-old kid who had my own clothing store, who was, like, selling across North America, who was doing Fashion Week, who felt like I was on top of the world. Like, it couldn't get better than this. And, like, how was I going to do something that was even better? And my dad really convinced me that I needed to close my clothing business and find the next thing. Um, I'm like getting emotional saying this. It was really hard at the time. And I was fascinated by the brain. I'd gone to school for neuroscience. I had been actually working in neuroscience research labs simultaneously, even as I was doing my re- uh, fashion business, because I knew that's what I was really interested in and where I thought the world was going to go. My fashion even reflected concepts of the brain. And I took the step. I closed the store, and I opened... Um, I started working with this guy called Steve Mann. He was the inventor of the wearable computer. He was a professor at the University of Toronto. And he had an early brain-computer interface system, a device that would let you put a single electrode on your head, and it would track your brain activity. And we began using it to create concerts where people could literally make music with their mind. So by shifting brain state, you could shift what was going on in the sound in the room. You could shift the sounds that you heard. And I sort of stood back and said, oh, my God, we are, like, literally controlling the world with our mind. People need to know about this. And this, this could be my next business. (laughs) And it wasn't even the sense of this could be my next business. It was like, okay, this is the next business. This is the thing. Mm -hmm. So I sort of stood back. I got together with my co-founders, Chris Amity, who is in Steve's lab. This is an unbelievable electrical engineer and incredible artist, like just amazing person, and Trevor Coleman, who was at the time my boyfriend's best friend, (laughs) and he was doing promotions and management for big clubs. So basically, he knew how to make things that were really fun, Mm -hmm. things that people wanted to use and, and experience. And the three of us got together to form a business around this technology with, you know, no formal business background. I had my family business background. Um... And we just decided that we were going to build this business to bring brain-computer interfaces to the world. And, and you guys did a sort of the precursor to your current company and product, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, you did a lot of um, sort of experimentation with you know, controlling lights on buildings with your thoughts or... Uh, The one that I'm sure was very popular was a a beer tap. (laughs) Yes. So basically, we spent a long time trying to find product market fit. Mm -hmm. We knew we had this super cool technology that could let you interact with things directly with your brain. And we knew that was going to be meaningful in some way, but we hadn't quite figured out what it was going to be. So we did silly things like creating thought-controlled beer taps. (laughs) Super awesome at parties. Not a great product. Right. We made thought-controlled toasters. Really fun demo. Not the best toast. (laughs) <laughs> what, 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 
I'm curious. So when you were um, when you were controlling the toaster with your mind, was it like to a certain like toast point, like like you know, like lightly toasted or heavily toasted or burnt? So what you would do is you would focus on it, and mm-hmm. the EEG would detect an increase in your beta brain state. Mm-hmm. Um, our processing was much more simplistic back then, just mm-hmm. based on alpha and beta. Now it's much more complex. So it would detect an increase in your focused brain waves, your beta brain state, and uh, when you felt like your toast was ready, you would clench your jaw to interrupt the brain signal, and the clench would cause the toast to pop. Hmm. So, super awesome, really hilarious, not really Great that practical. Trick. Great party <laughs> trick. Not something you really want to do every single morning as you make your toast. You, yeah. you want to, like, set it and forget it. Right. So we had all of these great ideas uh, that were a lot of fun, but not products. And we ultimately made the realization that the most important use of this technology was not going to be actually trying to control technology outside of ourselves, but letting us control the technology that we have inside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, as we went on and created all these things, we kept asking, like, what is the thing that's going to really move the needle for humanity? What's going to actually make people's lives better every day and not just be a silly flash in the pan? And we recognized, oddly, the solution was meditation. Mm -hmm. So it was just sort of coinciding with some of the mega trends around mindfulness and yeah, it was actually just before the mega trend started. So this was around 2011. Okay, it was before mindfulness was a thing, and so we recognized that as we were teaching people to focus and relax and shift their brain, in many ways we were teaching them to meditate, Mm -hmm. and we were giving a very meaningful piece of the puzzle that was missing for most meditators. When you sit there and meditate, you don't know what's going on in your brain. Right. So you try to meditate, you're like. This is supposed to be good for me. I have no idea what's supposed to, what I'm supposed to do. I'm frustrated. I don't do it. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that as we we're teaching people to focus and relax, as we we're showing them what's going on in their mind, we we're actually giving people this incredible insight into their own brain during what was essentially a meditation process. Mm-hmm. And then if we took that and we just created a product that would show people what went on in their brain during meditation and help them meditate, then we would be moving the needle for humanity. Yep. Like then we'd actually be helping people do something meaningful. Yeah. And so this is when you when you guys designed the first version of Muse, which is using biofeedback. Um, so not not controlling your mind, but sort of tracking what's going on inside, and sends um, sends that real time data to a smartphone or a tablet um, to help you sort of understand your brain activity. Is that an accurate description? Exactly. So the product that we eventually built is called Muse. Mm-hmm. It's a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate, and it gives you real time feedback on your brain during meditation. So it tracks your brain and lets you know when your mind is wandering and when your mind is focused. And the metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when your brain is thinking, distracted, bouncing all over the place, i.e. not meditating, Mm -hmm. you hear it as stormy. And as you bring yourself to quiet, focused meditation, it quiets the storms. So you actually get this real-time feedback during your meditation to know when you're off track and to guide you back into your meditation state and keep you there and reinforce you for being there. And so you get real-time feedback during your meditation, which is super helpful. And then after the fact, you actually get to see your data. You have charts and scores that show you what your brain was doing moment to moment. So you can track the progress in your meditation session after session. And it becomes this incredibly motivating way to stick with the practice and see how you improve. And you guys are, are, are using EEG in the, in the headband. Why is that the right signal to use? Can you sort of explain for our audience what, what is EEG and what's sort of happening inside the brain? Sure. So EEG is electroencephalograph. It tracks your brainwave activity. So when you think or you do anything mental, your brainwaves change. So your brainwaves are the sum total of the electrical communication between your neurons. So your neurons fire back electrical signals to one, one another, and that sum total can be read actually on the surface of your head. 
And it's quite simple. You can literally put a penny to your forehead and be able to have a bit of conductive EEG go through it. Mm -hmm. And so with the device that we built, we took the same EEG units that they have in hospitals, and we made it into this slim, sleek, beautiful little form factor, just like a Fitbit would be on your wrist. This is on your forehead. How many years did it take you to miniaturize that? A long time. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah. we Think about the decades it took them to take, you know, virtual reality from hospitals and treatment programs and make it, you know, even the larger size it still is now. Yeah, we just took, you know, 128-channel, wet prep, (laughs) uh, EEG with a ton of fiber optic cables and a massive computer, and we just made it. Yeah, just made it the size of a very, very small pair of glasses. Right, right. No problem. Yeah, easy. Innovation. Right. Um, So that was, you know, quite the process of taking the team and figuring out how we build the technology. And not just build the technology, but build it so that anyone and their grandma can slip a clinical-grade EEG on their head in three minutes, get good, clean signal, and be able to be, you know, walked into a beautiful meditation practice. That's pretty amazing. Um, so you had mentioned that you sort of started on this around 2011 and then, I guess, released the first version of Muse in 2014. Is that right? Yeah. So I actually started in the research lab with Steve Mann and mm-hmm. Chris Amity in 2003. Okay. In 2007, I got together with Chris and Trevor to really form Muse as a startup, mm-hmm. um, incorporated in 2009. Around 2011 is when we started using it. We recognized that meditation was the thing. And at that point, we would go into our VC pitches and we'd be like, you know, EEG is amazing. It can do all of these things. It can mean entertainment and sports and fitness and driver distraction and meditation. And they'd say, what's the killer app? And we'd say meditation. And they'd say, yeah, right. Right. (laughs) Well, it turns out we launched in 2014 um, and now in 2019 to great success. It turns out the killer app was meditation. (laughs) (laughs) Proved them all wrong, clearly. you know, obviously you're building you're building very complex hardware and software, which is very, very difficult, notoriously so. What for you has been the hardest part of getting to market? There are so many hard parts of getting to market, but interestingly, none of it felt impossible. Mm-hmm. So I mean if I stood back and looked at any of these pieces individually, they would have all seemed impossible. You know, you have to miniaturize a clinical grade EEG, you have to create this beautiful experience that just intuitively feels like your mind. Oh, by the way, I have to raise thirty million dollars with no experience, <laughs> you know, raising venture capital. Sure. Easy. Oh, we have to manufacture in China <laughs> and get product to North America and stock it on the shelves in Best Buy and create like you know, very simple flyers that tell people what this is, why they want to buy it, and how it works. You know, each parts of these places are incredibly complex. Yeah. Um, but somehow when we had the right team in place, people who had, you know, manufactured because they were at Research in Motion making Blackberries, people mm-hmm. who had great marketing experience, you know, bringing other products to market, people who had, you know, knew how to run sales teams, we were able to really amass the people who were extremely specialized in various pieces of this puzzle, mm-hmm. while my co-founders and I were able to maintain the large vision and understand how all the pieces worked together, mm-hmm. and, you know, between the entire team, actually be able to pull it off. Yeah. And um, I always like to ask this, just because I worked at a wearables company before joining Next, and um, uh, you know, most, most companies building hardware experience some sort of delay. Um, did you guys have delays on the shipping side that you had to deal with? For sure. Anybody yeah. who joined our 2012 Indiegogo will tell you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that sales are yeah. tricky. <laughs> we were like, for sure, nine months you'll have your product. Right. 18 months later, they finally received it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, our Indiegogo, I think, closed. I can't remember the date, so I won't, I won't go specifically into it. But, 
yeah, 18 months later, they finally had their product. Everything always takes longer than you expected. Um, When we created Muse 2, which was our next generation device that came out in 2018, um, you know, we already had this process pretty clearly down, um, but we had far more demand than we expected. We sold thousands and thousands of Muses on day one. Wow. (laughs) Literally, on day one, uh, which was not at all what we anticipated. So although, you know, their shipping was actually relatively on time, the factory couldn't meet the demand. Yeah. So, you know, now as we continue to roll out with new products, you learn at each and every step. So, sure. you know, we'll never make those mistakes again. Yeah. And you put a new processes in place and you just keep getting better. Did you learn anything that maybe you would share with other entrepreneurs about sort of managing the community when you're having those kinds of challenges? Because I think that that's actually one of the hardest parts, in my opinion. For sure. Honesty and transparency. Yeah. So you don't want to be hiding things from people. And it's a, it's a very fascinating balance because, you know, back in 2012, we were doing an Indiegogo campaign. We had all these people who were excited for our device and, like, really wanted to support us. And we wanted to give them what they wanted, which was the device. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't because manufacturing sure. just takes longer than you expect. And then you get into this tension between, okay, we want to communicate transparently, but there's probably also our competitors who purchased this device to, you know, just track what we're doing. Break it apart. <laughs> yeah. Figure out what's in it. Sure. And so each and every communication, you feel like there's a trade-off, but you really just have to be as compassionate as you can, mm-hmm. you know, understand these people really want to support you and they, they gave this to you because they want to see you succeed. Yep. And so you want to be as empathetic as you can. You want to be really honest and transparent in every way that you can. Um, and really be supportive of them, you know, supportive of people who are your supporters, because this has to be a two-way communication, Absolutely. a two-way street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about the actual hardware, which is sitting here in front of me. Um, could you describe the hardware and, and sensors sort of broadly, like what it is that you guys are using to be able to get into people's heads? Sure. So uh, for all of those there at Radio Land who can't see what I'm holding, so what I'm holding is uh, basically like a slim, slim little headband. There are EG sensors that run across your forehead, three of them, mm-hmm. and they're beautiful gold little sensors. Mm-hmm. Very flat. Then, so, yep. Yeah. So it just slips on your forehead. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of looks like a pair of glasses without the glasses on it. Right. Behind your ears, we have conductive rubber sensors. So mm-hmm. these are uh, carbon impregnated sensors, and they slip very comfortably behind your ears, and so they get EEG signal from uh, your temporal regions. Okay. So we're getting EEG frontal and temporal. And how, how different is the is version 2, which you guys came out with last year, from the from version 1 that came several years before? Yeah, so the original Muse uh, gave you real-time feedback on your brain during meditation um, and works, like, beautifully well to let you know what's going on in your mind. Mm-hmm. But we recognize that we have the opportunity to actually give you real-time feedback on multiple systems in your body. So in Muse 2, uh, it's a little bit smaller and a little bit slimmer, but the big upgrade is that there is a PPG sensor on it. So the PPG sensor tracks your heart rate, Hmm. so it gives you uh, actual data from your heart. But it's not like a number on your wrist. You actually hear the beating of your heart like the beating of a drum. Mm -hmm. So you're literally hearing your own heartbeat, and it tunes something called your interoception, your ability to sensitively understand what goes on inside your body. And that's the first step to stress management is to be able to hear when your heart rate is speeding up and know that you're a little bit stressed, Mm -hmm. which is then your cue to bring in other exercises. So we give you breathing exercises Mm -hmm. to teach you to slow your heart rate, calm your body, and manage your physiology. Mm -hmm. There's also a movement sensor, so it helps you find stillness in your your body and helps you improve your posture during sitting. Mm -hmm. So... Um, And then we also have a range of guided meditations, which are open to everybody um, with a small subscription. And in those guided meditations, we can actually give you 
feedback uh, on your heart, breath, mind, and body um, after the meditation. So you can actually do a guided meditation and then afterwards see what was going on in every system, see when you were triggered, see when you're calm. And from that knowledge, begin to understand how you really work with your body to manage yourself throughout the day. That's great. Because I, I, think, I think you're right. One of the biggest challenges of meditation is you do it and you're like, well, I feel better. But, like, did it really help me? Did I yeah. do it correctly? Were there ways that I could do it better? And so the kind of the coaching and the, and the feedback that you can get afterwards, I think, certainly very much plays into the... Um, maybe the ethos of a lot of products now where people really want want that sort of immediate feedback and be able to know how they're doing with it. Yeah, I mean, that's the basis of any behavioral change. You know, when you were a kid in school, you take a test and somebody grades it, and then you see where you went wrong and what you improve on. Right. Um, that's maybe a poor example because that's like a stressful example. <laughs> but we look in the mirror and we're like, oh, right, our hair's a little out of place. Let's fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't exist without feedback. We can't improve with it. We can exist, pardon me, Let's edit that. We can't, it's very hard to improve without feedback. Right. And so Muse really just shows you what's going on in your mind and your body during this kind of weird thing, meditation. It makes it really tangible, really obvious, and really actionable. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think that's very impressive about the hardware and the, and the software is that, um, that the calibration is actually very fast. It's only a few minutes to be able to calibrate that to a specific person. How difficult was it to, um, uh, to build that algorithm or that calibration process? That was really hard. (laughs) So uh, everybody's brain is different, and each person's brain is different every single day. Your brain changes from moment to moment, and it's different in the morning than it is at night. So at Muse, you begin with a 60-second calibration that detects where your brain is at, and from there takes you into the experience, and over time, you know, learns from you. And so that process really happened iteratively. You know, so we started with the first hundred, then the first thousand. Now we've had, you know, over a hundred thousand people who use Muse regularly in their lives. And so that's given us a very big database to begin to understand the differences in people's brains and the changes in people's brains and how we can create really tailored experiences that are meaningful for each individual. Have you gotten any particular feedback from your users that you thought was really helpful or sort of changed the... Uh, trajectory of where you guys were taking the product? So the most common thing we hear is it helped me meditate. Mm -hmm. So I'm at the point now, since we've been like five years in market, I've actually met meditation teachers. And when I asked them, how did they learn to meditate? They said, by using Muse. Wow. (laughs) So that was kind of (laughs) shocking. Yeah. Like we never imagined that we would have created something that was going to be so impactful. Like we just kind of hoped that this was going to work and that we could do it well. And, you know, our own little secret was we said, well, even if the technology never works, so long as we get people meditating, that's probably good enough. Sure. Like, that's that's our big that's mission. That's the main goal. Um, and so it was honestly surprising that it even worked in the first place. And I, like, I meet people who have muses that they bought four years ago, and they're still using them. And I'm like, what? Like, that thing hasn't fallen apart yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say, I, I, I'm saying it out loud now, but I don't say it out loud then. <laughs> sure. Um, so, you know, I think part of the most surprising thing was that we were actually able to be successful at this. And I think that's an incredibly empowering story for anybody listening to it who feels a little bit uncertain about what it is that they're creating, mm-hmm. who feels a little bit, you know, insecure that they have this massive big idea and will they ever be able to pull it off? And, you know, I was somebody who did not have all the skills and capabilities that I needed at the get-go to run this company or to, mm-hmm. you know, to bring this device to market. I knew nothing about manufacturing, much less the 50 other things I needed to know. Sure. Um, but we were able to pull together the team and pull together the resources and ultimately make it possible. Yeah. So, you know, I think the 
the biggest, most surprising lesson from all of this is you can actually accomplish something this complicated. And you can actually take a very big vision and bring it to life. And you guys also incorporate uh, a lot of gamification into the product, which I think is which is interesting because the gamification is something that a really wide variety of products um, are able to utilize to you know, increase retention and, and sort of user satisfaction. Um, is that something that you guys thought about from early on as being a core part of the product offering, or something that you introduced later? That was always from the beginning. So uh, Trevor Coleman our third co-founder, he was our chief product officer, and he's really responsible for the creation of the initial user experience of the product. And for him, gamification was something that was going to be incredibly important to keep people motivated and engaged. And it turns out that theory was completely correct. And so that's become a core piece of, you know, was a core piece at the beginning and continues to grow as a core piece to keep people engaged, to keep them coming back session after session so that you can learn this skill. Mm-hmm. And what are the little birdies that, yeah. that you get? So when you're very quiet, you hear a bird. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, the birds are a way of also undermining the goal-directed nature of any kind of gamification. So we have this tension because meditation is inherently non-goal-directed. You want to be non-judgmental about something. You want to learn to just be okay with the world. It's a, it's a, a concept called equanimity. But when we introduce a bunch of gamification and give you points and scores, all of a sudden you're striving for something. So we introduced the bird. And when you're very quiet, you're quiet for at least five seconds, you hear a little bird tweet. And the first time you get a bird, you don't think anything of it. You're just like, oh, that's a nice tweeting bird. And your mind doesn't wander. You stay focused on it, and you stay in your quiet space, and they keep tweeting. Once you discover that a bird is essentially a reward for staying quiet, then you get super excited. The next time you got a bird, you're like, yeah, I got my bird. I'm awesome. It's a bird. And what happens? The, the bird, bird flies away. away. Yeah, Because your mind begins to wander again. Right. The soundscape gets stormy and you just lost it all. And so the birds are actually a way to help you stay equanimous, mm-hmm. to stay equally uninvested in your rewards as your failures, to be able to just handle whatever comes your way and not get emotionally engaged in the process or mentally engaged in the process. That's really smart. Um, I'm curious if you envision that the you know uh, using using Muse is something that people sort of use they do for a lifetime. Is it is it is it sort of a practice that that people adopt, or do you find that people um, you know, sort of use it for the for the feedback or sort of training their mind when they meditate to um, you know to recognize when it's wandering and come back, um, and then they get better at it, and then they don't need to use Muse as much. Is it a wide variety? All of those things. All of the above. Okay. Um, so Muse is really a tool that teaches you how to meditate, and we've seen people use it in all the ways that you described. So for some people, they have used literally every single day for the last four years, and it makes their life better, and they're thrilled with it. Other people will use Muse for a month. They'll be like, oh, now I understand how to meditate, and then their wife will steal it, or you know, their teenage kid will steal it, sure. and it's gone on to somebody else. Um, other people use it for you know a five-minute meditation before they do an hour-long meditation without the device so that they can get into the zone more readily. Um, we have you know advanced meditators who don't want the neurofeedback, and they just use it to track their meditation, and they look at the data after the end. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different ways that you can use the same tool. And ultimately, our goal is just to teach you what to do. You know, Muse doesn't zap your brain. It's not an enlightenment button. It's really teaching you the skill of meditation, which you then go out into the world and use without the device so that you are more mindful and present in every moment, so that you are more aware of your emotional reactions and don't get swept up in them, so you are more able to be present in your daily life. 
And I understand you also have a number of people who are using this for uh, scientific and medical research applications. I was curious if maybe you could share a little bit about what those are. I was, I was thinking in my mind, like, this would be a wonderful thing for um, individuals suffering from PTSD, for example. So we've been incredibly lucky. We now have over 200 papers published using Muse wow. in, in journals all around the world, all by third-party labs who've taken Muse and used it in their own. So the one that came out recently was from the Mayo Clinic. They were using Muse with breast cancer patients awaiting surgery, and they discovered that using Muse uh, decreased the stress of the cancer care process, decreased fatigue, and also improved quality of life. Wow. So that was amazing. Um, so we have other researchers who are applying Muse to things like PTSD, traumatic brain injury, um, to see if they can help improve quality of life with people living with these conditions. That's wonderful. Um, have, it, have there been any... Um any of these papers or applications that really surprised you? Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think anyone would try to use Muse for that. So there's some people who uh, kind of hail back to our earlier days of trying to do thought-controlled things, and they'll use Muse to make, like, thought-controlled drones, and they're literally, like, university competitions with, you know, Muse thought-controlled things or thought-controlled <laughs> robots. Yeah, and that's because you guys are um, an open platform, right? You have an open SDK, and so developers can build really anything they want off of the platform. Is that right? So we used to have an open SDK. Okay. Now, if you want to build something, email us because okay. we had so many people building it that we couldn't actually manage <laughs> it's a good the problem to have. But yeah, so just email us. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so I'd love for you to take us, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the future. Um, what do you hope that we've accomplished or created with human computer interfaces by then? So I hope that human computer interfaces have made us more human. I think far too often we get so engaged in technology and we're like, oh my God, technology is amazing, that we forget that the important thing is us, who we are, that we're people that love to love and connect and eat and just be human. And we're starting to be in the place where human-computer interfaces can begin to subtly support our everyday interactions and subtly support one of the most important things we have, which is our health, and to help us shift and change our behaviors. So in the future, hopefully human-computer interfaces will be able to be smart about our habits and choices, represent those habits and choices back to us, and help guide us to things that may be a better, healthier outcome. Better eating choices, more time to be able to spend with one another, IRL, um, better ability to manage our own heart rate, to manage our own mind and thinking, all of these things that are fundamentally human and that really return us to who we are and what we want to be doing with our lives. Fingers crossed we get there. Fingers crossed we get there. And really, it's the responsibility of all technologists. It's the responsibility of all entrepreneurs. It's the responsibility of all of the people playing in the tech space to make the choices to make human lives better over profit. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with Muse. Can't wait to see what else you guys come out with. Thank you. My total pleasure. Thanks for listening to What's Next. We'll be releasing new interviews from Web Summit every week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Haley Lancaster. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email at podcast at samsungnext.com.